Our scripture reading for today is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And then a furious squall came up, and the waves broke against the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the waves died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Good morning, Restoration. We started a new series called Live Fearless today, and I want you to think about what it means to live fearless. Like, imagine living where the only fear you had was the reverent awe of God. Solomon was the wisest person who ever lived, and he said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is that thing that's holding you back? That obstacle that you face time and time again, but actually to live fearless would be to bust through that. To not let those things and voices and challenges that have stopped you in the past stop you ever again. Paul told his young adult son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So in this teaching series, we're going to look at the fourth chapter of the letter to the Philippians, along with several other stories from the Bible. And my prayer and goal is that you will see and hear God's voice in the midst of this series, that he will speak to you about those things that have been holding you back, that you wouldn't let those things hold you back any longer, that you would go forward into the things that you know he's called you to, The reality is, in my line of work, I see so many people who struggle with some level of anxiety. Sometimes it truly keeps them from living the life, not only that they want, but that God wants for them. And yet in Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you were anxious for nothing? Which begs the question, what are you anxious about? And what are you afraid of? When I thought about that this week, I thought back to when my parents took my sister and me to California right before I turned 11 years old. We got to spend two days at Disneyland and then we went over to Universal Studios Hollywood. It was great. I got to pick up the side of a van in the special effects area. I got to sit in the Back to the Future car. And then 
for one of our last things, we got to take this train ride around a pond where this mechanical shark fin first, first the fin, popped up on the water as the train rode by. And then more than half the shark sprung out of the water and its mouth opened wide. And I think it even creaked as it went up and down and then splashed back down in the water and it was pulled back around by these set of tracks. I mean, it was totally fake, right? Like mechanical and yet I was completely scared. In fact, so scared that the next summer when my parents were staying on this little cabin in a big lake up north, I at the ripe old age of 11 and a half was trying to pick up a channel on my TV or our TV there and the original Wi-Fi rabbit ears was up on the top and I happened to find on the channel the movie Jaws. And my parents were playing this board game with my sister and they said, you know, I really don't think you should watch that. But of course, I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. You know, I'm 11 and a half. And besides, I've studied dinosaurs and I've studied sharks and it's edited for TV. So how bad could it be? And I watched the whole thing. And it was super glued in my mind. In fact, I could barely water ski the rest of the summer. I was so afraid that there was going to be this huge great white shark that was going to bite my leg off in Lake Bemidji. In fact, I think the neighbors called 911. I screamed so hard or else that's what my parents told me. Not only that, the next winter, I almost failed my swim test because I was convinced that the underwater window in our pool was actually a door that would open and like baby great white sharks would come and swim around when the kids weren't there in the chlorinated pool. This is an irrational fear that haunted me for years. And I bet you have some fears that seem very real to you, but are actually just as irrational as mine. Okay, maybe not as much as mine, but close. So when one of my kids told me, Daddy, I really want to go see the Meg. Do you want to go with me? My response was, I really don't think you should see that movie. See, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Philippians, this messenger who went around sharing the news of Jesus and starting churches, he used a word for anxiety or anxious in Philippians called merenao. It's not just fun to say it. It means to be troubled with cares. Like, do not be anxious about anything. Be anxious for no thing. Do not be troubled and freaked out about stuff. But he also uses it earlier in the letter in Philippians 2.20. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered when I receive the news about you. I have no one else like him who will show merinao, genuine concern for your welfare. See, merinao can be needless anxiety, but it can also be genuine concern. So how do you know what it is? The more I thought about this, the more I thought about when a good friend of mine in college wanted to go back to Idaho and see his family for spring break. So another one of our friends, Keith, loaned him his car. Now, mind you, it's not his parents' car. It was his car, one he had already paid for or pretty close to paid for as a 20-year-old. And so my friend and another friend of mine drove out to Idaho. And on the coming back from Idaho, they went through the Rocky Mountains and my friend had downshifted into second gear so the car wouldn't get going too fast down the mountains. 
pretty smart thing to do, except these two friends of mine must have had a deep conversation in the car, been playing music really loud because they had almost hit the South Dakota border before they realized that the car was still in second gear. Almost four hours of driving at almost 80 miles an hour in second gear. My friend knew the transmission was destroyed and he knew he couldn't afford to get it repaired. And I was thinking, I can't imagine how much Keith is going to flip out when he hears this. So I'm ready to get some popcorn and sit down and watch because who needs a movie when you've got two friends who are just going to duke it out here. And so I watched my friend hand over the keys and apologize and explain the situation. And then Keith responds, oh, it's okay. I'm, I mean, you're okay, right? I'm okay. I'm glad you're okay. You know, I'll figure it out. It's, it's just a thing. What? Car is just a thing. See, by this time in college, I don't know, I'm 21 years old, so I, I know a little. I think I know more than I do, but I'm, I'm realizing that there's a difference between people who say they're a Christian and those who actually believe and follow Jesus. And I know that Keith is one of those people who believes and follows Jesus. And when I watch this response, I just think to myself, I want what Keith has. Because Keith has this ability to have genuine concern but not needless anxiety. See, that's what Paul commands us, to be anxious for nothing. And Paul was writing from prison. He was unable to leave his humble house. He was under house arrest, but it's not like he had a a transmitter chip on his ankle and he could just walk around his house. There were many times, most of the time, where he was actually chained to a guard at all times. So Paul is saying, hey, be anxious for nothing. And he's learned how to be anxious for nothing. In fact, he's just been dismissing his fears and his reasons for anxiety and he's found the peace of God. And over the coming weeks, we will find out what it looks like for us to do the same thing. See, while Jesus lived on earth, he was anxious for nothing as well. And it's not just this phrase that is this element of living fearless. It's also this critical piece that Jesus wanted his disciples to learn. That it was possible to have genuine concern without being anxious. And we see it in our reading today from Mark chapter 4. It says, when evening came, he said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. You know, some of that seems like unnecessary details. Like, and, and most scholars believe that Mark received his account from Peter. Peter's an eyewitness and one of Jesus' closest students. See, in my mind, this gives the story credibility because Peter's one of these guys that sometimes talks before he thinks. And, and I want a story from an eyewitness, someone who's been there. I want to learn from someone who's been back from the brink of fear and has now found peace. And so to me, this just gives the story more credibility. Now, it was Jesus' idea to go to the other side. So turn to somebody and say, Let's go to the other side. Come on, let's go to the other side. Let's, let's go. Yeah, because I know that felt a little weird, but starting the new year is like going to the other side. 
And sometimes a new job is like going to the other side or a new relationship is like going to the other side. Sometimes even a new day is like going to the other side. And it's Jesus who is telling us and calling us to go to the other side. So hang on to that. The story continues and says that a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat and so that it was nearly swamped. Now these boats were about 26 feet long and only about six or seven feet wide. And so you have to imagine these waves crashing over top of this boat. So it's nearly swamped. It's nearly under the water. Now I'm researching a couple mountain climbs because someone I love wants to do one. And so I'm looking out at the Cascade Mountain Range. And what I'm learning is that because of the relative closeness to a large body of water, i.e. the Pacific Ocean, complying with the drastic elevation change, it means that these mountain summits have unpredictably drastic weather, especially the later in the day it gets. And so everything I'm reading says that on the day that you attempt to summit the mountain, you leave, you start for the hike at 1 to 3 in the morning, somewhere in there, so that you can reach the peak by sunrise, you know, get some breathtaking views and and take some pictures, but not too long because you have to start trekking back down so that you can reach high camp before the bad weather rolls in, which is basically any time after 11 in the morning. Now, in the same way, the Sea of Galilee and the strip of land to the east of it is also relatively close to a large body of water, the Mediterranean Sea. And it goes from sea level up to the mountains, yes, not as high as the Rockies, but then all the way down to the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level which means it has all the ingredients for incredible, unpredictable, violent weather. And so this squall, this windstorm rises up and the waves are beating against the boat and it's nearly swamped. Do you ever feel nearly swamped? Or maybe more appropriate, where in your life do you feel nearly swamped. Maybe it's New Year's resolutions. Like, it's January 13th and you're already days behind that new habit. Or maybe that diet that you wanted to start's already been busted. You're like, is it even worth it? Or maybe it's at work. You have a new year that's brought new problems and people and decisions that are beating over your desk like those waves. Or it's at school, you've got homework and a ton of homework and, and you're so confused in science that you want to scream or cry or quit. You know, sometimes storms aren't always even bad things, terrible things. Like we have some new parents in the house and adding little humans is beautiful and precious and unpredictable and energy sucking and not terrible, but still a storm. Where do you feel swamped? You may want to write this down. It's what I'm learning. Living fearless is less about what we go through and more about how we go through it. Living fearless is less about what we go through and more about how we go through it. This furious squall comes up and the waves break against the boat so it's nearly swamped. The sailors are full of fear. Jesus is sleeping. And 
you know, this is the only time in the scriptures. I mean, we know Jesus slept at other times. We're pretty confident about that. But it's the only time it's recorded. So in my mind, that makes it incredibly important. So if you look around, you see that there is actually another place in the Bible that uses some of the very same phrases in it. It must be connected. It's in Jonah chapter four, or Jonah chapter one, verse four. It says, "Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the sh- th- ship threatened to break up." The sailors are full of fear. Jesus sleeping in his boat. Jonah is sleeping in his boat. Now, the difference, at least the big difference between those two, is that Jonah was sleeping because he was rebelling against God. Jesus was sleeping because he was resting in God. See, it's not always what we go through. It's how we go through it. Sometimes we're like Jonah, and it's our actions or inactions that are creating the storms in our life. And Sometimes it's not even our fault that we're going through the storm, but I'm learning that sometimes it is. I just want you to consider three ways that we create our own storms of anxiety in our souls. The first is simply looking at the word anxiety. We'll put it up here on the screen. And if you look at anxiety, look at the word. Yeah. Now look real hard at the middle of it. And what do you see in the middle of it? Yeah. I, I am in the middle of anxiety. And when I put myself in the center of it, I get anxious. I get scared. I get freaked out. And if you look at perpetually anxious people, they say things like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or I don't know what I'm going to wear. Or I don't know what they think about me. Or what am I going to do if this doesn't work out? It's all about me or I. If you're putting yourself in the center of your life, God didn't create our life to be that way. It's causing extra storms. I think the second way we create storms of anxiety and fear is just in this idea of timing. And yes, I am still working on this one. Timing is in preparation. Like often what we have to do really shouldn't cause anxiety in our life, but because we put it off, we don't do it or we're somewhat anxious about it, so we just keep leaving it. We procrastinate so much that we turn pro in our procrastination. That paper, for example, that you were assigned two or three weeks ago, it's not a storm. It's not something that would cause anxiety. It's the fact that you didn't do any research, you haven't written anything or outlined it or even started a first draft on it until the night before. Now it's anxiety. See, the teacher is not the problem. Your procrastination is the problem. That's what's making you anxious. That's what's creating this storm in your life. It's it's the timing. Or maybe you really want to spend time with a friend of yours, but you're just too busy to actually spend time with them. Busyness is like throwing gasoline on the small sparks of anxiety. It creates <laughs> But yet time, margin, Sabbath, they are the things that calm the storms of anxiety. And you know what I'm finally willing to admit? I don't have to drive into the city very often, so I don't deal with a lot of traffic. But 
when I prepare for, when I build cushion into my drive times for traffic, I'm so much less stressed or anxious or mad about traffic when I hit it. I mean, come on. It's wisdom, right? That's what James 1.5 says, that if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously. Yes, our God is a generous giver. And he gives generously to all, not just to some, to all of us that ask. And without finding fault. And it will be given to you. Now, you know those people in your life, right, that, that give you wisdom but also find fault? And sometimes they're parents. They just can't help it. You know, the next time you do this, you could do such and such and, and, and this and this. They just, they can't, just to your friends who like to find fault. God gives us wisdom without finding fault. Which, you know, finding fault is, it's just a few degrees away from shame. And, and shame is, I think, the third way that we create storms of anxiety and fear in our souls. I mean, shame is the very first consequence from the first rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. When the first man and the first woman ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they felt shame for being naked. And it's less about being actually naked, but you know that feeling you get when you walk out onto a crowded pool deck wearing only your swimsuit? Yeah, you're, you're dressed, but you're only wearing a swimsuit. And there's all these people around, and I don't know what it is about me, but I tend to notice the people that are of the similar age and stage as me. And you look at them, and you notice what they have that you don't have, or, or maybe what you have what, and what they don't have. But either way, you feel inadequate. It's shame. Or when you walk out of the house or you run to the bus or you drive to work and you realize in that moment that you forgot something that you absolutely need for the day. But instead of just figuring out how to solve that problem, you start beating yourself up about it. Oh, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I forgot this again. I'm never going to amount to anything. And you start telling yourself this stuff. It's like paranoia creeps up on your neck and grabs you by the shoulders. And so you're walking around believing that everyone else is judging you. That's shame. Now, sometimes God does bring guilt or conviction into our life. Maybe you've done something that is bigger. It is your fault. And the Spirit of God is bringing guilt or conviction to you. That comes from a place of love to bring about forgiveness and repentance. Guilt says, I, I did something bad. That, that could be from God. But shame is never from God because shame says, no, you are bad. Shame creates storms of anxiety in our life. And shame makes us think that Jesus doesn't care. We're just like the disciples. He was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And when we're filled with anxiety and fear, we can think that Jesus doesn't care. Maybe 
your your life this year is radically different than you thought it was going to be and you're wondering if Jesus cares or maybe you're in a situation that you don't want to be in and you don't know how to get out and you're thinking does Jesus actually care I used to think that Jesus was upset that they woke him up but not anymore remember it's not what we go through it's how we go through it I used to read annoyance and rebuke into Jesus' response, and I think many of us do. But that's not actually what the story says. In verse 39, it says, He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And they died down and it was completely calm. It was like the sea was this raging monster or a huge great white shark, and he just spoke to it and it was calm. And the sea has been in this is in the ancient world is this image of an untamed monster, this powerful, ominous force. And Jesus does rebuke that. But he doesn't rebuke the disciples. Totally different verb. He said to the disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Then they were terrified and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, if they were scared about the wind and the waves, now they're freaking out about Jesus. They, who is this? But Jesus just asked them about their large fear and their small faith. But remember, it's Jesus who sent them to the other side. And if he's God, then he knows the storm is coming. Remember, Jesus is sleeping. The storm is not their fault. I think he's sleeping because he knows God's in control, but he's sleeping because the teacher's always quiet during a test. I used to be a teacher. I know this. And since the storm wasn't their fault, maybe the storm was their classroom. Maybe Jesus was trying to teach them something. Yes, when he commanded the wind and the waves to be still, it was certainly a demonstration of who he was and is. But I think it was even more so that they would know how to ask for what they need. That they would know how to to talk to the wind and the waves and the storms in their lives. Because Jesus knew that he wasn't always going to be with them in physical form the same way that he was with them in that moment. He knew that he would be sending the Holy Spirit who would live in them and give them instruction and conviction and direction, just like he gives us that now if we believe in him. But I think that Jesus might have even been modeling an authority that we have in the Holy Spirit to still the storms of our own souls. Because I know, I know a lot more than I did at 21. I know that I'm not going to drown from the storms out there. I'm going to drown from the storms in here, in my mind, in my heart, way more. I have a way higher chance of that. Maybe you do too. Just consider if you are more like Jonah today, the storms are your fault. 
you're more like Jesus today that really no matter what the storm you can you can be resting in God confident that he's in control or if you're like the disciples even if they're not your fault you're still having some anxiety some irrational fears See, if we want the peace of God that we're promised so that we can be anxious for nothing, then we need to do what God's word says. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, another word for prayer, with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Three times. Jesus says prayer, supplication, and requests. All three are words for prayer. Asking for what you need is an antidote for anxiety. It's the first way we can calm the storms in our lives. We can ask. Are you asking for what you need? Just want to tell a story, if it's okay, just a couple minutes. Because God has been at work at this week. I mean, I had a dear friend of mine who's also a restoration friend who's competent and capable and independent and rarely asked for prayer. Send me a text that said, Hey guys, I am sitting in my car crying. And there's this big situation that I can't control. And it's not just affecting me, it's affecting my spouse. And we're discouraged more than maybe we've ever been before. Would you just pray for a miracle that that this thing that we've got to get through would, would happen? We get through it. And my wife and I and another friend were all in the text and we all replied pretty quickly and I'm immediately praying and I'm praying what I'm studying what I'm reading what I'm working on this week for fear and anxiety and faith and asking and so I pray all that stuff four hours later I just we get this update hey my spouse and I texted like we we made it that thing that we never thought was going to happen we got it Thank you so much for the prayers. Ask. Friends, ask. Sometimes God is just waiting for us to ask him with courage for help and courage. And if we ask, he does answer faithfully. It's the first way. Asking is the first way we can calm the storms in our own souls. But so is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving calms the anxiety and fears in us too. This verse says that we are to do everything by prayer and supplication. Another word for for prayer, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is what we do to remember how God has worked in the past. We give thanks to God by remembering the ways he's worked in the past. We're here today because God has brought us through the storms of the past. And when we remember his past faithfulness, it inspires us to believe that he's still working in our lives today. So are you giving thanks? Thanksgiving is a way that we calm the anxiety and the fear. And finally, worshiping. 
worshiping quiets the fears and calms the anxieties in our lives. The disciples started to do it when they say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The Psalms say, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, just take a deep breath for me and breathe it out. Do it again. Now, not only does that produce some calm in us, it it reminds us that, hey, we have breath so we can praise the Lord. Because when we stop to acknowledge him, we, we breathe out his truth. We breathe out his, breathe in his presence. We remind ourselves of his grace. It's more than singing. It's declaring who he is and how he works. And worship calms those fears and anxieties in our lives because it's less about what we go through and more about how we go through it. See, when we trust Christ as our Savior and our Lord, when you ask him to save you and leave you, then he fills you with his spirit too so that we can speak to the storms of our soul. Quiet, be still. We can calm the raging fears and anxieties in our lives. We can remind ourselves that he is greater that the spirit that is in us when we say yes to Jesus is greater than the spirit in the world. So God, would you work and speak to each of us about where we're at? Some of us are like Jonah. We know the storm is our fault. But God, even in the midst of that, you can give us peace. Some of us are like the disciples. It's not our fault, but we're kind of freaking out. We're wondering if, if you care. And some of us might be like Jesus. We can just have confidence in you. We can rest in you, knowing that you are going to care for us and bring us through, that you're the one who's going to take us to the other side. So I pray that you would speak to us about where we're at, that you'd speak to each person here. And God, you'd speak to them about the the waves that they create or the storms that they create in their own soul by, by shame, God, by improper planning or timing and God, by just putting themselves in the center of their lives. But God, that also you would give us opportunities to ask, to give thanks, and to worship you like we've never worshiped before. Amen.